Okay, good morning. Today we have a good opportunity, as it's a few days before Rosh Hashanah, to talk about Rosh Hashanah. So what I did for you here today is jewishindg.com slash hhresources. High Holiday Resources gives you tons of different resources for how to do High Holidays on your own, if that is. So you have a High Holiday Handbook. Let's just take a look at it for a second. Um, just a, just a, you know, just all the different resources. Um, a Rosh Hashanah Machzor. Let's say you don't have a Machzor. You can print out this Machzor. It's a full Machzor of all the different things that you need again, to do Rosh Hashanah at home. What we're going to take a look at um, right now, oh, I have a dinner companion here. And this is, this is something that I created together with Rabbi Tzvi here, and Leah put it together so nicely. And that is, we initially, what we did was, we created it as a follow-along, sing-along guide. Which means what ends up happening is the, the machzor itself is very long. Let's back up a second before we get into this particular discussion on the Rosh Hashanah follow-along sing-along guide. What is the point of Rosh Hashanah? What's the whole point of it? What is it all about? Now, there's been this kind of feeling... There's a joke that I don't even know if it's such a joke that the Jewish people are the only people that dread their holidays. That, oh, book of life, book of death. I have to cover my bases, make sure everything is good. And I'm not saying anything wrong with that. Actually, on a Kabbalistic level, the reason why Rosh Hashanah is so important is because during the year, Kabbalistically, we have what's called an iteruta dilatata, which means that if we want to create a bond, a relationship with God, we need to do it on our own. You have to wake up in the morning and say, I want to pray today. I want to connect today. For 10 days a year, we're given a gift. And that is called an itaruta de la which is an awakening or a, uh, the word is arousal, but an awakening from above, which means God puts within our soul, within our psyche, within our being, this mechanism that says, dear Chava, right now, no matter what's going on in the world, your soul needs to connect. Now, you still don't have to act on it. Some people don't act on it. But by and large, that feeling of feeling more spiritual during this time of year causes people to wake up and say, what am I going to do for Rosh Hashanah? And people who the rest of the year would never even consider doing something spiritual or Jewish, all of a sudden, which shul am I going to? I need to get uh, some stuff so I can do some kind of traditional dinner. So you wonder why this is such a popular time of year Jewishly. It's not because it's uh, the Jewish New Year and, you know, the high holy days and that's not why. It's because on a Kabbalistic level, our souls kind of wake up. And it's not an awakening from us. It's an awakening from above. And our souls want to connect to something greater. Again, it doesn't mean that we're going to act on it. But by and large, if you have the itch, you want to scratch it. And so it's like this itch. I have to do something Jewish I have to connect somehow Jewishly. So people come. Yet, I, I always say, if there's one uh, time of year that you should pick to connect, I mean, maybe you should pick Shavuot. Shavuot's a wonderful holiday. 
come and let's have cheesecake together. But why pick the hardest holidays of the year with the longest prayers, with the the longest, you know, and, and, and obviously since the room is full, cantors love to take advantage of a full room and they feel that energy. And so they want to even go on longer with their cantorship or whatever you want to call it. So it's very hard. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, probably that's why nobody comes the rest of the year, because they think that's the way it is the whole other, the the rest of the year. Long, drawn out, and off-tune prayer. Now it makes sense. If you're only coming for high holidays, it all makes sense now. So a number of years ago, I looked around the room at Chabad and DG, and I saw that people who are not used to prayer, they're not used to sitting in a synagogue and praying, and definitely don't know the meaning and the love behind each of the prayers, are having a hard time sitting in shul for three hours and connecting. And so if you're actually taking the time and showing up, that's a very powerful thing. I believe that the greatest power is showing up. But once you show up, there's nothing you can do about it. It's either going to be a positive experience or a negative experience. Yes, your predisposition is going to create that. Either you came with a smile or you came with like, you know, I want to cover my bases kind of thing and let's get out of here, you know. It's going to be how long? Okay, let's just do it. It's my it's my little Judaism for the year, and happy birthday, everyone, or happy birthday, Adam and mankind for that matter. So let's, I thought, change that. Instead of making it long and off-tune and drawn out, let's create a situation where we can be happy. And satisfied that we did something meaningful. Now, I'm going to make a small caveat there. If you're able to do the entire prayer and follow along, that is the the main thing. The truth is the main thing is having a 30-second emotional connection with God. Because the point of Rosh Hashanah is that we coronate... I've never used that. I've never heard that word outside of Rosh Hashanah. But we coronate God as our king. That's the point of Rosh Hashanah, which means there's no king without subjects. Just in the past few weeks, England or the the monarchy uh, has changed with the passing of Queen Elizabeth. And there's a king, King Charles. But if nobody accepted King Charles as a king, then he essentially would be a king without a crown. Part of being a king is you need to have subjects. And so what Rosh Hashanah really is, is actually the time that God needs us. Because what we do is we reestablish God as the king. Again, the king is the metaphor. Today, king as a metaphor is very difficult, though it happens to be this year and this moment because it's a conversation that people are having. What is the monarchy and what is the king and, and, and what does it all mean? So maybe we, do, we can use it for a change as a real metaphor. Yet it still doesn't work so well. But the idea is, is that in order for there to be a god, in order for there to be some kind of higher power, We need to accept that higher power. So God needs us. God needs us to say, you are the king. And that's what we do primarily on Rosh Hashanah. We establish once again our relationship and our connection and the fact that God's the king. So that's the first thing we do. Establish a relationship. Relationship is not intellectual. 
right now, this class, the way we're talking, this relationship that we have now is an intellectual relationship. But it's not really a relationship. It's a, it's a learning. A relationship needs to be emotional from our heart. So establishing a relationship needs to be from our heart. Right after the destruction of the temple, the great Talmudist Rav realized that the relationship and connection with God for these few hundred years of the temple was through the temple. And now it's destroyed. And so what are people going to do? Come Rosh Hashanah, where you can't come to the holy temple in Jerusalem and offer your sacrifices and experience the the awesomeness. I don't mean it in a teenage way. But I mean it in a real way. The awesomeness of the temple. People are going to lose connection. And so this caused him to start collecting prayers. Rav was the first person to create an organized prayer book. And the first prayer book that was created for the Jewish people was the Rosh Hashanah Machsor, the prayers of Rosh Hashanah. And he collected prayers from uh, Tanakh, from the Torah, from the prophets, from the writings, uh, various prayers of King David, prayers of Joshua, of Moses. And prayers from his contemporaries as well, from Talmudists. And he started compiling it. And this later became the Rosh Hashanah Machzor and what will become the Yom Kippur Machzor. And uh, about a, a little less than 100 years after that, the men of the Great Assembly, the Anshe Knesset Agadola, actually created what will today we have as the Siddur, which is the daily prayer book and the Shabbat prayer book. But the beginning of the concept of organized prayer within the Jewish people was the Rosh Hashanah Machzor. So if you can follow the prayers that Rav put together and later on compiled by many other people as well, these are prayers that are tested and proven. These are prayers that worked for others, and that's why Rob said they're powerful. Because they work for others, so maybe they'll work for you. You could say, rub it up, dub thanks for the grub, yay God. I don't know if that's worked for anyone. It is a prayer. You could pray from your heart. You can pray from that place within you. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Maybe... These prayers will work for you. Maybe they won't. But what we do know about them is that they're tested and proven. So because they're tested and proven, there's a better chance that they're going to work than maybe just a random prayer that you made up. So that's why we use them. So I don't want this idea that I have for you this morning to take away the value and the power of saying the prayers of these holy sages and the possibility that these prayers that are tested and proven can be work for you and your family during this beautiful, very special Rosh Hashanah season. But I know that people have a hard time connecting to those prayers. So what I did is I created the Cliff Notes version, or in Canada we call it the Coles Notes version, the abridged version, which means... In our synagogue, we call it the follow-along, sing-along guide. But you could use this as a machzor. You could use this as a prayer. It has the essential prayers that you need to complete your Rosh Hashanah experience. What you're going to find is each page has page numbers. Those page numbers will associate with the machzor that I showed you before that you can download. That machzor... That's where the page numbers that we're talking about. Or if you're in the synagogue, this is the machzor that we use. Now, there are four prayers for each of the days of Rosh Hashanah. There's a Ma'arif prayer because, remember, the day in Judaism always starts at night. So there's a Ma'arif prayer, an evening prayer. 
There will be a morning prayer called the Shacharit prayer. In the morning prayer, there's an additional prayer called the Musaf prayer. And then there'll be an afternoon prayer called the Mincha prayer. Why we have these prayers is because the remnant of the temple, remember, organized Jewish prayer was created after the temple was destroyed. So obviously, they're going to be reminiscent of what, what the process was in the temple. And so there were different sacrifices that were brought in the temple. There was a morning. On the holidays, there was a special Musaf sacrifice. And there was an afternoon. Also, the three prayers of Shacharit, Mincha, and Arvit were created by the three uh, forefathers. Abraham created the morning prayer. Isaac, Yitzchak made the afternoon prayer, and Yaakov made the evening prayer. Jacob made the evening prayer. That's just the general concept behind prayer. So the first night of Rosh Hashanah, this particular, in, in this book, the prayer is three pages. So let's say before you're busy, if you're having a dinner, or maybe you be, you're the one that's organizing the dinner, before you do that uh that dinner, it would be really, really amazing if you sat down and did a little prayer. This prayer here is the Shema. And what you have here, if you look, I did it all phonetically. In the shul, we're going to sing it. So you have the ability to do the this uh, on, uh, in English if you want, or you can do it phonetically. Yes. Sorry, I have a visitor. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. You want to say hello to everybody? Thank you. Thank you. Oh, it's your back? Okay, bye. See you later. Have fun. Thank you. Sorry, he doesn't want to say hi. He's too busy. Okay. Any questions before I continue? We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. Is there a certain um, preferred time of day? I understand the the you know sundown and during the the holiday, but within that framework, is there a preferred time of day? Yeah, so the evening prayers for the evening and the morning prayers for the morning. So different prayers will have different times of day. Uh, okay. Um, Julian's questions. I'm wondering if the ultimate example of the opposite of this world be the generation of the flood, the most disconnection, most unimportant, uncorrect. Uh, so to speak, the king asked with God. I mean, generation of the flood is a good example. There were other times in history that people went against the king and didn't coronate the king. So yes, I would agree with that. It's I don't know if it's the ultimate example, but it's one of the one of the examples. And unfortunately, we have a wonderful and colorful history that has other examples as well. Do we have another name for Rav? Uh, we do, um, but we call him Rav for now. Okay, so so we have um, 
So we have these prayers. So you'll see them here phonetic in the book. Now, each prayer, each prayer, both the morning, afternoon, and evening prayer, comprised of what we call the Amida. The Amida is usually said standing. It's usually said with our feet together, like angels. Um, there's a, and what we do with the Amida it's, is, is it's our opportunity to pray our own prayer. So this is our opportunity to close our eyes and speak to God from our heart. Now, in Judaism, we don't think. Somehow in the Western civilization, we've learned to read by thinking, which means we're not actually reading. We're kind of following the words with our eyes and we're thinking the words, but we're not saying the words. That's not prayer. Prayer is enunciating loud enough that you can hear it. The process of prayer is you need to say the words, which means if I'm looking at this now and I'm reading, I can read it without saying it. That's not, that's not saying. That's not reading. Reading is actually saying the words. So if you have something on your heart in a prayer, something you want to say, you have to enunciate it at least loud enough that you yourself can hear it. Yes, I know you're going to tell me, but I can hear my thoughts as well. Yeah, but the power of prayer is the power of enunciation, of saying the words of prayer. And maybe, I mean, I, I know there's studies behind this. Maybe it has something to do with the, the reason behind it is that um, when we say it, like an affirmation, it actually becomes part of us. In any case, I'll leave all of the philosophy for people who like to philosophize. But the reality is, is that to pray, it needs to be enunciated. Now, what I did here is each of the Amidas, you're going to see kind of like the liturgy of the Amida. I didn't give you the actual Amida, but I gave you the intention behind that particular Amida. Because my hope is, through this inspiration that I've given you in this book, is that you can be able to take this idea and you can actually build it up and help. it'll help you create an emotional relationship with God. Because that's the entire point, creating the emotional relationship. And specifically for Rosh Hashanah, the entire point is coronating and accepting the kingship of God. So let's give an example of an Amida. This is just the Amida that I put together for the, uh, for the first night of Rosh Hashanah for the Myriv prayer. Maimonides writes that until the destruction of the Holy Temple, everyone prayed in their own words. When the Jews were in exile, however, their language became a mix of a distorted Hebrew and some of the other languages of the regions of their exiles. As a result, they weren't able to express themselves properly. Therefore, Ezra and his rabbinical court established a set text for everyone to use. The prayers that we say take place of the daily sacrifices brought in the Holy Temple would only make sense. It's reminiscent of the Holy Temple. What it says is that by saying the sacrifice, it's as if we brought the sacrifice. Vidui tefillah. That by saying the sacrifice, it's like we brought it. The men of the great assembly who composed and compiled the prayers knew exactly which words and letters to use that would substitute for the sacrifices and bring about the same spiritual effect as the sacrifices would have. Some commentaries explain that every word and letter in the liturgy, in addition to its literal meaning, alludes to the various names of God and spiritual beings in the supernal worlds. In our prayers, we are not only praying for and affecting our own fate, but also that of the angels and the spiritual spheres. There is a belief 
based on the Midrash, that one of the reasons why the angels did not want the Torah to come down to us is because today they need to wait for us to pray in order for them to pray. They want to pray and serve God. They need to wait for us to pray in order for them to pray. So in saying these words prescribed by our sages, we connect to those spiritual energies alluded to on a mystical level to the point where we allow the angels to pray. Prayer, as it's understood through the lens of Jewish mysticism, is not just about expressing our conscious feelings. Rather, it's a time when we uncover and create deeper and holier feelings of which we may as of yet be unaware. This occurs specifically through this liturgy. There's an additional need for a fixed text when it comes to praising God. Praising any entity implies the ability to judge and evaluate that that entity. In other words, one who praises is expressing some degree of superiority over the praised one. If I say that you're amazing, me saying you're amazing gives me power. Who am I to say that you're amazing? A lay person telling a world-class musician, I think you play well, could be considered humorous and maybe even disrespectful. What do you mean you play well? Of course, the person's a world-class musician. What do you know about music? So for us humans to praise God, for God's power and kindness denies the true indescribable greatness and the unabridged gap between the finite creations and the infinite creator. Who are we to praise God? You woke up this morning, you decided, oh, I'm the greatest thing that ever happened since sliced challah. Now I can praise God. God is infinite. Who decided you can praise God? So the Talmud says that there is, it's prohibited for an individual to choose how to praise and describe God's greatness, which would be an act of evaluating and limiting God's greatness. So we use these prescribed praises that have been composed by our sages based on the verses of the Torah. So at least we feel that A, there was divine inspiration, And B, it's the Torah, so it's beyond, it's more connected, it's beyond just our ability to praise. And maybe it can be added that the same applies to the request in the Amida. Requesting also implies at least some sense of entitlement or deservedness. At the very least, it shows that the person requesting has the right to speak to the one who's asked. At the very least, it shows that the one requesting has the right to speak to the one being asked. And if it were truly to fathom the the infinity of God, the infinity of God's presence, and then realize our own smallness, (laughs) we wouldn't feel worthy of asking for anything. So every request we have, and the very concept of prayer in the first place needs to be justified by being mandated and alluded to in God's word, in the Torah. And despite all this, we have to know that the sages throughout the generations have recognized and cautioned against the the risk of fixed liturgy because they were afraid that it would become an absent-minded recitation. It would become routine and absent and genuine feeling. And that's not the point. And to to a certain extent, for those who pray every day, it has become a little bit of that. So that's why it's still important to be able to add our own prayers, because we need to be able to have that emotional connection and connect to God on an emotional level and to feel that connection. There is, to answer Julian's question, there is one biblical commandment of Rosh Hashanah, and that is to listen to the blowing of the shofar. Why is the blowing of the shofar so powerful? I can go on for an entire class just on this, the power of the blowing of the shofar. I'm not going to get to that today because today we're focusing on prayer. But what I'll say is that 
it could be seen as maybe like the trumpet blowing for the king, but it's not. The, the best example is example that is given by the Dubno Magid. Who was a Dubno Magid? The Dubno Magid was a rabbi who lived some hundred years ago. And he had, a, he had a story for every question that he was asked. Someone asked him a question, he would say, let me tell you a story. Somebody once asked him, actually, how do you have a story for every question? So he said, let me tell you a story. And the story he said is that one time there was a king. Very often he used kings in his stories. There was a king that was going through the forest, and the king was a master archer. And he sees three trees in the forest. And on each of the trees, there's a bullseye, and in the center of the bullseye, there's an arrow. And the king thinks to himself, I am a master archer. Which person put these arrows and these bullseyes? They must be a greater archer than I. And he started asking around, who is the master archer here? And they showed him the man, and he asked the man, what's your secret? How did you do it? How are you a greater archer than I? So the man smiled and he said, you see, my dear king, there's two ways of shooting the arrow. Some people make a bullseye and then try to get an arrow to the center. I shoot the arrow and then I make the bullseye. And that was the example he gave it. He said, he said, he said I don't have, I'm, no, that was his, his analogy for how he had a story for everything. So he tells a story about the shofar. Give me one second. He says that there was once a, a king who had a son, a prince. And the prince was, let's say, a wayward child. And the king wanted to teach the prince responsibility. And so he sent the king, the prince, out of the palace. But the deal was that the prince would go out for, I don't know, a couple of days, a week, maybe two weeks, and then the prince would come back. So the prince left the palace because he was forced. He didn't want to. And he goes out into the field. And what is he going to do? The first night is cold and it's hard. He doesn't have anywhere to live. And by the second and third day, he finds his way and he meets a group of uh, woodchoppers. He never saw this before. He lived his whole life in the palace. And he says, excuse me, what are you doing? And they said, we're chopping wood. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, we need wood. You know, you, <laughs> it gets cold at night. People need to heat, uh, need heat. We chop the wood and we send the wood, the logs. We even send it to the palace of the king. You know, we're, we're, that, we're that good. You know, okay. Can I do that with you? Sure. We teach him how to be a wood chopper and all day he's chopping wood. Day two, he's enjoying the fruits of his labor, chopping wood, making money. He lives with the wood choppers. A week goes by, two weeks go by, and the king's expecting him back. He doesn't come back. Actually, He's so involved with the woodchopper and all the woodchoppers that he forgets that he's the prince. And he forgets about the king. Years go by, and the king is mourning his only son. And the son forgets all of where from where he comes. He becomes a very good woodchopper, part of the woodchopping community. And he becomes a good citizen in the country. One day, there's murmur around the wood chopping world. The king is coming through the forest. Let's go get a glimpse of the king. And he says, no, I, I mean, the prince says, who's now a wood chopper, he says, no, I don't want to hear about the, I don't know about the king. I don't know who the king is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chop wood. Well, everyone goes and they crowd to the center of the forest to try to get a good glimpse of the carriage of the king. It's one opportunity. And meanwhile, the prince is chopping wood. And people are screaming with excitement. They're standing. 
waiting to see the king pass through and the princess chopping wood. And all of a sudden he has a realization that he's the prince and that this is his opportunity. And this is his father. So he runs to the center of a tomb. By the time he gets there, he's all the way in the back. The king will never be able to see him. And he starts jumping up and down. Father, father. People are like, what, what are you talking about? He says, the king is my father. He says, yeah, sure. The king is all of our fathers. Sure. <laughs> the king is your father. You know, did you, did you, I could send you somewhere special if you think the king is your father. No, father, father. He's jumping up and down. The king who's in the center of a town greeting the people can't hear him. And he's screaming as loud as he can, but the king can't hear him. Because there's so many people. And after some time, he just breaks down and begins to cry. And the cry sounds a bit like this. And the king hears the cry. He says, stop. Where's that coming from? And they clear away and the king walks through the people and he finds the prince on the floor crying and brings him back home. The Dugumagat says this is the example. Of the shofar. The soul comes down to this world. The soul comes from the kingdom of God, right from the throne, from the heavenly spheres. And the soul comes down into this world and it lives in this world for a week or two or two or 10 or 30 or 50 years. And the soul, because it lives in the world of woodchoppers, it gets used to being a woodchopper and it forgets about the king, forgets about God. And then, come Rosh Hashanah, it feels this awakening. It remembers, hold on, I'm the prince. I'm the princess. But there's a problem. It's been so many years, I don't know how to talk to God anymore. I don't know how to make that relationship. I'm going to go to shul and Rosh Hashanah, but I don't know how to create that connection. What do I do? It's been so many years. I don't even know where to start. Uh, hi, God. This is me. Uh, the prince. What's up? How's it going? You chilling today? Like, what do I say? And so what the shofar is, it's a universal cry from each and every one of us. When we hear that sound, we're listening to our inner cry. The cry that says, God, it's been so long. I don't know how to connect to you. But I hope that you can hear my cry and respond to the inner cry of your child, of your prince, of your princess. That's about the best I can do. And that's why the shofar is so powerful for each and every one of us. Because it's our true prayer. It's our inner voice screaming to God in a language saying, we don't know words. We don't know what to tell you. So today, all we're going to do is break down and cry. And so the biblical obligation of Rosh Hashanah is to listen to those sounds and to experience that relationship from deep within our heart, from deep within our soul, that relationship with God. And so if you have one thing that you can do, even more than prayer, is to try to find a, an opportunity and a way to be able to listen to the sound of the shofar, on Monday and Tuesday, that would be really, really amazing. Back to this 
prayers. So I'm not, I'm not going to go since I see already time is late. But you can see here that each and every uh, each and every prayer. Look, there's the morning prayers. Here's the phonetic for the morning prayer. Obviously, the morning prayer is a little longer than the evening prayer. And anyway, the whole thing is about 48 pages, and that gives you a little bit of an idea of uh, of what's going on. Alexandra, please. Can one blow their own shofar, or the mitzvah is to hear it only? Yes, you can blow your own shofar. You can blow your own shofar if you know how to do it. If you know there's a lot of specific laws with regards to it, but there is a way to do it. And uh, I think last year or two years ago, I taught, I did a session and I taught how to how to do the shofar and how to all the laws. But if you know how to do it, yes, you could definitely blow your own shofar. Okay. Thank you. As long as it's not blowing hot air. No, no, no. You've you've blown it for Yom Kippur last year. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's my tradition. I do it every year. Yeah. Any other questions? I just wanted to share that uh, Lola and my husband and and Lola's father were all going to hear um, Rabbi Wilhelm do shofar in the park. We're really excited on Monday. That's very uh, exciting. Shofar in the park. Yeah. That's yeah. Fun. Uh, I do have a, a specific question. When I was asking about the time of day, I, I think I wasn't specific enough. So when we say morning prayer, is that the same as like like for when our feet hit the ground kind of thing before we do anything? So um, properly <clears throat> as morning as possible, but it could be morning would mean any time during daylight hours. And evening would be any time after nightfall. An afternoon would be any time after midday. That's handy. <laughs> that helps. Yeah. Thank you. No, because sometimes people, you know, you wake up at one o'clock or I don't know what, it, what, you know, people on their weekends, they're sleeping in and you're like, oh, well, I missed it. No, you didn't miss it. It's still light out. It's Who light are out. They? You didn't miss it. Yeah, I know. I'm jealous. I, I know, to... me too. I don't know if I can do that, but there are people who do that. And often we do both together. Sometimes we can uh, we can do we can finish the morning prayer and and move on to the afternoon one. No. Yes, absolutely. I know people who do them all at once, right before sundown. They do the morning, the afternoon, and the evening. Oh wow! Hey, it all works. And I know there's other people who are very holy who takes them the whole day to do it. So <laughs> it's all it's all good. Um, Julian, your question is yes. You compose your own prayer. Um, they, I don't understand exactly what, what the issue would be. The people who composed it, did they meet? Yes, they, they met, they composed it and they used it. Absolutely. Okay, so since we're uh, slowly coming to a close, I mean, there's so much more to say, but uh, this is about what we can do in an hour. What is your takeaway today? What is your, What are your thoughts? What are your wishes? What are your feelings going into this Rosh Hashanah of 5783? Anybody want to start? Not all at once, please. As usual. A... I don't know. I feel that reflecting on ourselves is part of the yearly work we need to do. And and I feel that rushing to do it now, to for me, I, I'm talking about me only. Please do not extrapolate this. It To me, it would feel a bit hypocrisy to just do it at this time of year. Surely at this time of year, you can make your... You know, you can take your invoice for the year, as you'll say, and, and uh, see where you could have been better, where you could have done better, where you could have helped more, where, where you've noticed traits of your ego that <clears throat> are present and that you may want to improve that for the next year. Um, but, you know, I was reflecting that I was lucky 
maybe because of me going through Israel, etc. I've always lived through a Jewish, I mean, for many, many years, I've lived through a Jewish calendar. And while I, I do not come from a religious home and the rabbi knows my story, Judaism was present. So I, I understand the practice of it and, and it's part of my life. But I also understand that not everybody has had, has had that privilege and, and that one could come to any time in their life and say, hey, hold on, I'm Jewish. What do I need to know to do now? Like, what does it mean? And I guess that the what does it mean is part of my day too as well. It, it's, it, you know, but we're all on different level of what does it mean? I don't know if I make any sense in what I'm saying, but it was just reflections I was having listening to you today. So I don't know if I have a takeaway, but these were my questioning while listening to you today. That's, a, that's quite a takeaway. Mic drop. <laughs> I think it's a lot of people think that, you know, and it wasn't raised with it. I was never educated. I don't know what's right. And it turns them off, or I don't know how to connect. I don't know where to go. I don't know who to speak to. And that's, and that's you know, they, they just kind of they stop before they even begin. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a very powerful message. If you've never done Rosh Hashanah before, maybe the fact that you're here right now experiencing this means that this is your year. But I also differentiate, and I know like we've, it's, it's a discussion we have uh, time and time and again, I, I differentiate with the practice of Judaism and living by the principles of Judaism. I mean, again, who's Jewish, who's not, uh, who cares? But it's, it's about, you know, how do I take those principles that are important to me and apply them? to my day-to-day life, does it make me less of a Jew because I don't eat kosher? I don't think so. Um, I think it's all part of the same conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's the conversation about focusing on what I do instead of what I don't do. We'll always be able to find things that we don't do. Right. We're not supposed to be perfect people. We were perfect. God would have kept the angels and never created us. The fact that we were created, it's, it's not to be perfect. It's not even to, to, to create a perfect world because the world is balanced between good and evil. It's to be better. So focusing on what we do is a much more powerful experience, in my opinion. Thank you. So I will pass it on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Should I put somebody on the spot? We're not many today. Let, let's go for Chava. Thank you. I really thank you for sharing that, Alessandra. I really resonate with it. Uh, it's been really challenging to try. I more than challenging, intimidating at times. Trying to catch up, you know, on almost fifty years of of missing out on what I'm part of. So I appreciate uh, what you just shared. And um, my takeaway is the idea of how to build a relationship with Hashem from my heart instead of my mind. And that's a, that's a challenge for me just because of my history um, and what I've experienced. Um, of other religions. And so I am going to make that my, um, my consciousness there about how to cultivate a relationship with Hashem from my heart and, and not my intellectual being. Thank you for today, Rabbi. Uh, Fami, I saw you unmuted. I'm going to take that as a sign that you're ready. Uh, uh, thank you. So, so, so me, uh, thank you. Uh, so, me, I will give another interpretation which I like a lot, which is like from uh, our uh, like uh, Jonathan Sachs. He's great, like great, great. He's like yeah. So, so me, I, I see 
the sound of the shofar, I hear it like a wake-up call. You know, we are on this, I mean, we passed all the year working, busy, or some crazy stuff happening. So, so we forget like the routine or whatever life brings uh, in, your, in, in your way will make you forget where you are. Sometimes will make you forget where God is, you know. So it's like a wake-up call and the uh, shofar like in this new year, like wake-up call and to, to understand where you are or where you want to be, what have you done. So it's like a, in any business, any company to, to see or to account what have you done good, what have you done bad, what, what, what is missing. So it's a wake-up call, I see it. Uh, this, this, is, this is how I, this is how Jonathan Sachs explained it, and I like the way he put it. Because it's a sound, like you, it wakes you up, right? So uh, I, I see how, this is how I, so like, I mean, we have accountant to, uh, we have accountant to, to I mean, to make, uh, how I can say it in uh, uh, Bilan, like uh, company Bilan, we have like, uh, Judaism is how to manage our time. This is how I see it. How do you manage your time? And, 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 and Rosh Hashanah is a, is a, is a, is a wake up call. So you, so you do, so you can reflect on what happened in the, I mean, in this year, or when, or where you will, or where you want to be for the next year. So, without a wake-up call, how can you reflect, right? Thank you. So, I, I, I passed. So, uh, we, we only have one guy left here. So, Julian. Yeah. The only thing is getting at the end, it would appear that you're saying growth is more important than perfection. How I digest and absorb that I don't know. I need to be like one of the animals that chewed over in the, in the cud again and again, like cows with its seven stomachs. I will take some time to integrate that in myself. Thank you. Okay, any questions, uh, final final thoughts since we have uh, three minutes? Yeah, maybe maybe Alexandra can, can, can ship that salad to us, right? Sammy, <laughs> do you know what I'm making? Of course, I know what you're making. I'm making a hoja. I know. I understand. I mean, I, I'm, I'm seeing it. <laughs> I have the, the, the oven so that they would keep their fat off. You know. For the and, record, Fami is seeing it and he's salivating. Yeah. Uh, Welcome. Th listen. Thank you, dear Rabbi, for explaining. <laughs> <laughs> you are in Montreal since I understand you have moved to Toronto that's what you said the other day yeah. please let me know in advance so I can I can offer you something thank you it will be with great pleasure no, no, but, but, but you, you can FedEx it too right like I don't know <laughs> I don't know if the merguez will uh, will stand the shipping um, FedEx, with, you know? with, with merguez too oh my god like, yes <laughs> I love it and today's uh is a crazy day. I am uh, traveling to Cameroon, so I need to go and get my meds for you know malaria and stuff like that. And and I have my assistant working here, so I figured I'm going to prepare sufficiently for lunch and dinner, so that everyone is happy and I don't have the stress of having to fix a meal uh, later. And this is perfect to be cooked in advance and just, you know, take in as one is hungry. And then I make some fries, you know, to go with it as we're used to, you know. But the fries will be done at the last minute because, you know, cold fries are irrelevant. So, so I have two questions. One, Alessandra, if you can tell me what, that is because I'm not familiar with it. And the second one's really easy. So so uh tomorrow night, then I start with the evening prayer that you have in the prayer book. Uh, it's not tomorrow night, it's Sunday night, yes. Sorry, Sunday night. Okay. 
So what I'm making is grilled peppers that have been peeled and then will be fried with olive oil and garlic. And then once they are, you know, when they look good <laughs> to your eye, that's when you add some tomatoes that have been peeled prior as well and cut up. And once the once the sauce is a bit uh, is is not too liquid, but also not too cook, that's when you put the merguez. Oh my in. god! And and some people put eggs as well. Once the merguez are ready, you can break an egg on it. My kids don't like it, so I don't do it. But with salt and pepper, you can put some paprika if you like it more. You know, um, spiced. I sometimes put, uh, but what I do is that I buy spicy merguez, so they give their juice in the sauce and I don't need to add anything extra. And it makes for perfect uh, lunch or dinner with uh, bread and uh, and fries. That I, sounds amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Wow, that sounds... Sure. I'm suddenly starving. <laughs> At a.m. and it's even earlier for you. It's what seven? It's eight. eight she she she's torturing us. She shows us like this. She's torturing us. That's what, she, what are you, she's oh, doing here. Oh, you thought this was a Kabbalah class? This is really a cooking <laughs> show right here. <laughs> this is but, not a Kabbalah it, class. This is a real cooking show. We'll be happy to have you all in the same room and to fix it for you all. Tell me one. You know, uh, Jill approached me with. Um, the the idea of buying tickets for next October to come see you all this year this October no no next October oh the next, next October. October. Mm-hmm. okay fine yeah. this October is a bit busy for me I have uh, now Miss Bad Mitzvah but I would have loved to have you I mean who, who if you were in town I would have added uh, seats ah, thank you and I just wanted to add that that this is Kabbalah conversation, uh, in my humble opinion, because the way Alessandra is cooking is definitely, to my eye, an expression of her soul, without a doubt. It is a language of love for me. I can see that. Vibing the food. There's different languages of love. And, and this is one of them, the showing people you love and you care for them through your food. Totally acceptable for me. This is how my husband, my husband speaks this language of love to me. I'm not the best cook, but my husband does, does this for me. So I feel blessed. And I, I, speak, I, I receive that language very well. <laughs> Fresh croissant, to me, that's a language of love. It's a sign of uh, dear love and appreciation. So I'm very pleased. Okay. With that, I want to wish you a Shana Tova, a happy and healthy and sweet new year. And may uh, all of the prayers and whatever you do, may it be answered and fulfilled. And may we have a year of good health and happiness and joy and and being able to see uh, all the good fruits of our labor. L'chaim. Amen, amen. L'chaim. And, and I will add the last word and I will love you, leave you. When we would my, my former mother-in-law for dinner on Shabbat, she would say, I'm just a messenger. This comes from Hashem directly. Mm. So when I when I cook, I'm, I'm given a gift from Hashem that I can share with everybody else. And I will say Shabbat Shalom till then. And I'll see you over the holidays, Rabbi. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you 
and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness, and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode. <music> 